without community, there's no liberation. So first of all, the, the legacy burden of individualism, we're asked to do trauma healing alone or with a therapist that may be well-intentioned, but it's still part of materialism, the legacy burden of, I can only, the only way I can heal is by paying someone I don't really know. That in itself, even though it's better than nothing, is part of what creates loneliness and isolation and lack of belonging. Welcome back to Possibility Now with Ethan Hughes. I'm your host, Tucker Walsh. Today, Ethan and I will be exploring the realm of individual, collective, and systemic trauma, discussing various practices like IFS, internal family systems, to unburden, heal, and serve each other in the world. In the second half of the podcast, starting around the 51 minute mark, Ethan explores 10 peace archetypes that invites us all to find our river that flows us into the ocean of the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible. I'm so grateful to have Ethan back on the show after a long hiatus, and I hope you find this episode as enlivening as I have. Let's dive in. All right. Well, Ethan, I'm so excited to be back with you on podcast land. I um, was so blessed to have joined Ethan for three days um, for an IFS, Internal Family Systems, training in person after not seeing Ethan in person for two years almost. And um, yeah, it was a lovely experience, very, very powerful work, um, both collectively and individual, individually for me as well. And uh, we felt called to create this podcast in part to, to touch on some of the topics that we spoke about in that three-day workshop. And um, yeah, we'll see, where, we'll see where it takes us. So welcome, Ethan. Hey, Tucker. I just <laughs> want to point out in the rhythm, the, the two times you've been to the possibility lines is every two years when we have goat babies. <laughs> so yeah, you came again I, for the goat healing. I, yeah, I come for the goat babies <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, amazing. So where, yeah, where do you want to dive in, Ethan? Yeah, maybe just starting where we were with that training and how we led to team up with the Internal Family Systems Institute and and trauma healing and where that leads us with collective liberation and bringing all beings from suffering on, on the macro level and trying to reduce re- reduce healing. Um, I think diving in and just what I see happening as I look at uh, the important trauma healing work is that it's becoming mainstream and some of the exciting shifts there originally trauma healing was under this idea that you were lonely or depressed uh, or all these other things because you had something wrong with you and now that big shift realizing that oh we're actually all traumatized the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk is has been on the New York Times best-selling selling list for the longest of any of the books on there right now. And that just shows how people are realizing they want to get to the root of what's happening. Because we, when we're in trauma, we can't, all trauma studies show that we can't see clearly when we're having a trauma response. That could be flight, fright, fight, or freeze. And that um, we're 
we're not able to see what's happening, so we can't respond to create healing. And without unlocking that healing, we're all going to be reacting or shutting down as things happen in the world and around us, whether that's a depressed child, which is sacred work to heal, or whether that's food systems collapsing on, on any scale. Yeah, beautiful. You know, it's funny, I was actually having a conversation last night with a few friends about the word trauma. And there's a panel discussion happening in a few days with a woman named Benita Roy, who I find uh, really inspiring. And there's talk around the word trauma and if it's maybe being overused in um, mainstream culture, I don't know if that's the right terminology, but is there, is there a risk in overly seeing trauma in all things or in, all, in everything that makes us perhaps uncomfortable? And how do we find that balance between really diving into this work that has, you know, in some ways been repressed for hundreds, if not thousands of years of multi-generational aspects of trauma while also not making everything trauma to the point where, you know, maybe we're not diversifying the medicine that our soul needs. I think that's a great question. And I, that brings us to these multiple layers of trauma and Charles Gelde, I mentioned the book before I'm recovering from Western civilization Mm. Uh, internal family systems therapy now has legacy burdens or cultural burdens that are traumatizing everybody. That's what we're realizing is that these systems of racism, individualism, materialism, sexism, as the internal family systems legacy, that we're all traumatized by them. And if we don't recognize that, there can't be the healing that needs to happen with that said, we also have to realize that on top of cultural traumatization, um, we have individual. So these, these legacy burdens also play into violence, sexual abuse, all these other individual traumas, which are also incredibly important, and to differentiate between the cultural traumas and the individual traumas that we go through. Another important piece with the trauma work is to whatever healing each person needs, how do we hold space in each community that needs healing and who's appropriate, who's the appropriate person to hold that healing and not have what many call like the trauma Olympics, like who comparing who's more traumatized and then we have a hierarchy again instead of collective liberation, but also being aware of who has, who needs the most healing at this moment. So it's, I think when we do this work, it's an important dance and we have to be checking in with each other constantly as we work to do it. And we also see other communities, like a lot of the indigenous communities, they already had systems of healing that. And that creates incredible resiliency and an ability to stay resilient in, for example, 500 years of colonization and occupation. So in the West, I think that has been lost where there's a still a, you can be stigmatized if you have a therapist or you say, Hey, I have, I have trauma to heal. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very delicate place to move into. And I think each person needs to be honored with what they're holding and how to heal it to be led by the individual.
instead of a kind of cookie cutter, this is how you do it. That's when we were in danger. And yeah. Yeah, it might be helpful to actually define what trauma means and maybe what it means in different contexts that we'll be discussing it in. And I also wonder, how does one know whether what they're feeling is individual trauma, collective trauma, ancestral trauma? Um, you know, for example, when I am meditating, sometimes I'll, I'll have a somatic experience, a rise of discomfort, and it feels familiar. Um, but if I go into sort of that witness mode, it's just basically energy or feelings or emotions or thoughts or stories that are coming and going and passing and arising and falling. And to me, it's not always so obvious to know like, oh, this is that or this is this is my individual thing. This is somebody else's energy and this is my energy. It all kind of becomes one big soup when I experience it from more of that witness mode. So I'm curious how you do that personally, how you know what trauma is coming from what sources. Yeah, I think first to define trauma, which is a great question, I'm gonna use the internal family systems therapy model that is basically a multiplicity that we have many parts inside of us and they all have a sacred role. And around those parts is self energy, which is this energy of uh, the more of the definition or the aspects of self or compassion, confidence. There's these creativity that that shows us when we're moving towards more of the self energy. And when we have a traumatic event, like my losing my dad to uh, being hit by a drunk driver when he was crossing the road at that time, a lot of the parts, get traumatized. So some of my parts, because then my mom was working and I had to come home and take care of myself. I had what they call managers, protectors came on from the trauma. And I have managers and firefighters that try to protect me from feeling those feelings of helpless, helplessness or loss. And so often once we get a burden, that's a trauma and trauma then locks us in that time so then those parts are locked into strategies that really worked when i was 13 but now at age 51 i'm still using strategies even though i'm now in a different place i'm not in that single family home with economic scarcity and time scarcity that goes for any kind of trauma any kind of abuse or violence often we have a strategy to protect ourselves and then later we're actually safe but our system is still locked in that time and doesn't feel safe. So our nervous system is, is agitated. And when we look at uh, combining internal family systems with some of the insights of nonviolent communication and other pieces, there's this beautiful tree that the bottom of the tree is the roots is like self-connection is we get rooted when we're connected with what's happening with us. I feel scared, I feel joy, I feel at ease, I feel tense. I don't feel safe. And even that observing self-connection can help us know what's happening for us. There's a lot of tools to help mindfulness tools. There's so many amazing different modalities of the self-connection part. Peter Levine, Waking the Tiger and all that trauma work. We have Sarah Payton, your resonant self. We have my grandmother's hands, Resma. Menachem, we have so many 
pathways in to have the self-connection and mindfulness from many of the interfaith traditions. So then we get self-connected and then we move up to our, our relational. We're in relation with people and those relations can either create healing or what's called unburdening. We unburden the trauma and our nervous system is more expansive. We have all those eight C's of creativity and confidence and compassion moving into the world. Or relationships can re-traumatize us. So when we come into relation with people, either our family or our community, we have kind of two pathways. Once I'm self-connected, let's say I'm in an argument with a neighbor that I'm, we have a love one another Black Lives Matter sign and the neighbor's like, That's, that group is a terrorist group and I really want to connect, I either have to choose self-expression, so I go into this part of the tree, which is I express my feelings and needs around sharing about the amazing experiences I've had with that organization and individuals and start to shift the field of, of this person's trauma coming up, this fear, or I can go into empathy and hear why this person is afraid. Um, so that's the, like the middle part of the tree that we're constantly choosing in any situation. Do I empathize and try to de-escalate the other person's nervous system or do I self-express so that person can know what's happening on a deeper level with me? And it's interesting with a lot of this trauma work, some healing of these uh, white supremacy heteropatriarchy is that especially in liberal cultures and you know the cancel culture energy, it could be terrifying to share a part of us is racist and so we we put that back into our psyche and then it plays out unconsciously and one example i'll use is i i was uh at a mall when i was in middle school i was uh a, a, maybe about nine black teenagers came and they took my money and i was whipped with a belt and i had a cigarette held up to my face and you know, back then it was just, it was a one a traumatizing experience, and I also realized that there's these the domination system of white supremacy and theft and kidnapping in the middle passage. Like there's so much happening that I have incredible compassion. That yeah, there's this there's other larger cultural context of why that happened. But then for many years, if I was on a subway alone in Boston and young black black people came onto the train, I would have fear. So I was like, I had these parts that were acting racist, that were like making uh, assumptions based on uh, how people show up in their ethnicity. And so I, I, by sharing it, that's how it healed. So if I was on the Greyhound, I'd share like, hey, I had this experience and I know why it happened. And it's, it's so much bigger than me and that, that group. And this comes up for me and being able to share it, that's part of the trauma healing is in a safe place that is, is there's consent. You share these areas of sexism and racism, and then they can come forward and heal instead of being exiled, which is in a lot of trauma healing, especially the internal family systems, you exile that part. And then and both, it can be exiled in groups and exiled in yourself, and then it can never heal. And I think that's where we are right now in the United States is that someone says the wrong sentence and then everyone jumps on them and then they have a shame response and a trauma response. And then 
it get exiled. And so we're not getting to the root of undoing and dismantling these systems of domination. Um, so it, it becomes a really uh, amazing discernment, which we have to do together to figure out, am I needing self-connection? Am I needing empathy, self-expression? And the final piece that's important is going up the tree to the cultural level and ask the question, are we healing, dismantling, and reweaving the systems of domination that are keeping us all, they're keeping us all oppressed. You know, when we hold somebody down with white supremacy, we have to be on the ground holding them down. Uh, we're all hurting and some, obviously genocide, the indigenous culture has to be raised up as a different kind of hurting and holding down than what is happening in our system if we can do that to somebody, if we can, you know, our ancestors who practiced genocide. So on this tree, we have to be really sensitive. If we're losing our self-connection, we probably shouldn't be on the front lines. I've been to, we were just at line three uh, working for native sovereignty and to stop missing indigenous women and children. And a lot of people we brought to line three had their trauma come up and they actually created a lot of harm in themselves and also a lot of disruption to the frontline actions because they came with unprocessed trauma. So for me, it'd be, how do we heal that self-trauma before we show up to the front line and then we're discharging our trauma on everyone around us. And then we have what happens in organizations, conflict arises, we all start the domino effect of trauma and then we can't come together to actually dismantle this and to know when am I ready to go um, to the front lines. And so we were, this whole three days was really looking at that how do we know what our capacity is? And also, how do we stretch? Because we're in a time of cultural planetary collapse. So it's, um, again, it's that dance of how do we grow our capacity and how do we not re-traumatize ourselves in the process? Yeah, beautiful. So how do we know whether we're ready to be on the front lines and what happens when we feel ready, like we actually genuinely feel like we're coming from a place of fullness and capacity. And then we get to the front lines and one person says one sentence and all of a sudden, boom, you know, we're, we're totally yeah. off. Um, what, what's the, what do you yeah. do in that situation? Well, it's another great question. And, uh, you know, I want to also share from my position as a white hetero male, my response, there's so many responses that need to be heard. So I think these conversations, inviting listeners to research, read, practice these things, and then start having conversations so we can work together. Like Audre Lorde who says there's, without community, there's no liberation. So first of all, the, the legacy burden of individualism, we're asked to do trauma healing alone or with a therapist that may be well-intentioned, but it's still part of materialism, the legacy burden of, I can only, the only way I can heal is by paying someone I don't really know. That in itself, even though it's better than nothing, is part of what creates loneliness and isolation and lack of belonging. Because we can only belong if we have so much money. We can only, that never happened in any nature-based culture I knew in the world that I've, I've had the honor to work with um, and follow their leadership, that there was always access to that kind of healing without needing to pay or have resources. So 
shifting that is a big part of these trainings that we're doing is getting, you know, the vision for internal family systems is let's all know the basic tools and eventually therapists will be obsolete because we all can support each other. So one example of how we prepare our systems in this advanced, we did a three day that you participated in, then we did advanced training. We're on the third day, all the participants went to Uma Farm, a black led farm and black owned farm. And we also, all the money from the three days of the training went to the farm. So we showed up and we, we let the farm know that, yeah, we're doing trauma healing so that we can be ready to show up in a good way to be accomplices and allies um, so that our system's cleaner when we show up. And that is, that's how we build capacity. We go together. Some of us have spent years uh, in the front lines in Detroit in the water shutoffs or Standing Rock or other places where we've been invited. And then people can go and feel safer that, oh, I'm with people that are going to be help me process while I'm in a, a black space. And so then we can debrief after and it helps people build the courage because yeah, a lot of what's stopping this work is we can call it white fragility and some of the other things. And that's important. And also that, yeah, I know it's just how it is. A lot of white people are terrified that they're going to go into these spaces and create more harm. And so how do we risk and make mistakes with the consent of those we're helping and how do we not just get frozen? I mean, that's a flight response. Like, oh my gosh, I can't step to dismantle these systems of domination because I'll create more harm, whether that's more harm through heteropatriarchy or colonization. And so we need to be, I feel doing all three of these at the same time is the sweet spot where we might lean into right now, a bunch of us are working to stop this extractive multinational corporation, land-based fish farm that's taking all the water and basically another layer of colonization on this area that was originally Penobscot and is now occupied by white Mainers. And so when we lean into that, we have to make sure as we're doing that work and resisting and trying to basically reweave this extractive system, we have to look at our friends and see who's starting to get overwhelmed and actually from Adrian Marie Brown and so many amazing black leaders and indigenous leaders, Sherry Mitchell and, and sacred instructions are telling us resting and renewal is part of revolutionary action. And that, you know, puts relief in my nervous system because we can then replay domination, you know, just, I'm going to heal everyone and everything. Thomas Merton, a wonderful mystic, so that's cooperating with violence. That one single human being is responsible for healing everything and everyone instead of this piece of, hey, I'm gonna be there at the black farm today helping and moving resources to them that have been stolen. And tomorrow I really need to sit on a beach with a friend and swim and, and recharge, you know, knowing what that medicine is. So that's where the beautiful thing is we have to be in constant communication with each other and that actually undoes the legacy burden of individualism and separateness. We're then together in this. And at this training, so many people had relief that they could talk about their trauma and their families and everything else as a community and feel safe. 
and actually have the most important conversations of healing being done collectively, which that's a revolutionary act. Um, so yeah, that's some of the pieces. I'll put it back over to you for uh, yeah. questions. Cause there's a lot happening on the cultural, the interpersonal and the, the individual level. These are all happening simultaneously. And so it's, you know, it's a lot to keep track of and be mindful of. Right. And so I'm wondering for our viewers, just on a very practical level, if someone was to go to a protest next weekend and um, they are feeling great, they're showing up, it's a beautiful day, everything's good. And boom, somebody says something or something happens and maybe it's just an email they got that's not even related to the protest. And all of a sudden their system is totally flooded. They're feeling very activated or triggered. What, what would you recommend they do in, in terms of just practical next steps in a situation like that when they're maybe not trusting their full selves to be able to show up and um, be at full capacity? Yeah. I, you know, as we are sharing, as we're doing these three-day trainings, again, in the gift economy and having much of the resources go back to these communities that have been cut out of economics for their own liberation, uh, one thing we say is learn the basic tools. So one really great resource that has practice tools, which has just come out as No Bad Parts by Richard Swartz, the founder of Internal Family Systems Trauma. A lot of the trauma healing has been stuck in academia and has been stuck in the therapy world. And now because of the emergency, the global emergency, both internal and external, we see the founders of these traditions and these healing modalities starting to give it instead of a DIFS, you know, the old book was this big book that was for therapists. And now this book is just for the common person to start practicing. So whether it's my grandmother's hands or whether it's no bad parts, um, any of these tools just help us to know like, oh, now I can take a breath and check in and feel in my body somatic work. Uh, that's number one is practicing those tools and not in a, this is a other kind of paradigm shift, not as a workshop. Now, if people came to this workshop and practiced the tools for three days and that was it, there's not going to be much healing and liberation happening. We invite this as embodiment, the beginning of a practice to be, as they say in IFS, self-led. And we invite people to partner up afterwards and start practice pods. So in December, we had everyone who did a three-day, we're practicing weekly. And also those groups were going together to dismantle and reweave and heal, whether that was going to make sure food was distributed or working with people who are unhoused or working to participate in Wabanaki sovereignty, whatever it might be, this practice group goes out together to, to practice and come back so that we're that is when all three are happening. So learning the tools, sharing and practicing, practicing the tools, I would say once a week, um, because we, we should have been taught this K through 12. We should know how to regulate our own nervous systems, which is such revolutionary work. And then, yeah, the third one is then when that happens, someone gets flooded because someone might email and like, oh, you're just going there because you're a white savior. And then they get flooded and like, whoa, maybe, maybe part of that is true. 
maybe it's not, we don't know, but it floods the person's system and they decide I'm not going to go that once you're with a practice group, they'll reach out and say, what's happening for you, Tucker, what's happening. And then we can address the self-connection and the nervous system and unpack it. And then you may decide, okay, I feel well-resourced enough to head out. The other thing, when we go to an action, a direct action, or we go to any of these places, once we have a trauma response, we can't hear and see what's happening. So the other loss is you might be sitting there listening to amazing black and indigenous and people of color speakers. You're not even taking it in. When we're having a response that that shuts down our nervous system, whether we disassociate or whether we fight or whether we, so many other pieces flee, we can't take in the important information. One of the radical steps is to listen deeply with our hearts and minds to the experiences of marginalized people, whether they're from queer, trans, whatever community they're from. If we can't have that compassion and understanding we ourselves aren't going to be moved by it. So you know, I think a lot of times people are at an important uprising and their nervous system is shut down and they're actually creating a field of dis, you know, disequilibrium to anyone around them. So they're, they're creating a less grounded field and they're not able to take in the experience and they might be re-traumatizing themselves. So you know, uh, in a bi binary, we would say, well, okay, then white people are off the hook from going to do to collective liberation, not just for cultures, but for the planet. We're in the sixth extinction. The binary would be like, oh, that, that's okay. I'm traumatized, so I'm not going to go. Or the other binary is, it doesn't matter what you're feeling. You have to show up now, right now. And that's a binary that I think gets us into, that's a domination binary. Instead of, yes, if we don't dismantle the systems of domination, trauma, being traumatized will never end. So for all the wonderful spiritual centers and healing centers, if they're doing self-connection and empathy and self-expression between people, that's, that's a wonderful, crucial work. But if those centers don't start doing the work of undoing these legacy burdens, no matter how much interpersonal or self-work we do, those systems of domination are going to, they're inside of us, so they're going to affect our self-connection, and they're going to impact all of our relationships. Like, I, I maybe said this in a different interview around conflict, but all the wonderful people in Brazil who do the work of restorative circles, they've come to found at the root of every conflict is 500 years old, and that's from all these systems of domination. So, we have to unpack that. We have an ancestral trauma, which you had asked about too, to honor that in epigenetics, they're showing that ancestral trauma is actually passed in the DNA, genetically passed. And so that's another legacy burden is that we have to know our history. And that history could be a difficult history, like my great-grandmother being set up to a marriage in America and leaving Poland and just that was very traumatic uh, marrying someone they didn't know who's in the States. So knowing that history, I can know where that trauma might show up. Or if your history is being ancestors being forced across the middle passage 
and many of them dying and being enslaved. And that is uh, also important. So once we know more of our histories, we can be aware of like, oh, I have ancestors who survived the Holocaust. So I can see why this trauma response is coming up right now in this situation out in the world. And then we can have more understanding. And as Buddha says, the more we understand, the more compassion is available. So all these things are happening. And sometimes we don't know. We have to go into our system and figure out, is this trauma from my dad being killed? Or is this trauma from separateness and individualism? Because one of the traumas I had is my dad died. My mom was working all the time. And I was 13 and cooking meals and no one was coming to my house. It was individualism. No one felt I was the responsibility. So I also have trauma from the legacy burden of individualism and separateness. So I have to really, it's amazing to start to get connected to our system and realize, oh, that's the loss of my dad. Oh, and this is from collective individualism and separateness. And then we can start actually, when we get that nuance, we can really start healing those particular areas, the, the legacy burdens, as the internal family systems calls them, um, or ancestral trauma. And then we have ancestral healing, which actually starts shifting these systems of domination. When we have five generations of alcoholics and you do the work to heal and, and then not pass that to your children, that is incredible trauma healing work. And it's also incredible heavy lifting because the momentum of hundreds of years are behind you. And again, there's beautiful people in broken systems. So I'm not, the, the ancestors were doing their best too. So in trauma, we often firefighters that are burden will go to addiction. So yeah, healing that, and we can't do it alone. It's back to that. It's like, when you ask that question, what happens when we go to a protest? It's like create circles of support and create those communities of change and learn the tools together. And then we have this incredible feedback loop. You go, you get the support you need, you go to the Black Lives Matter rally, you can really listen and be there and really hear and be challenged because your nervous system is open. So then you learn, then you come back to your communities with new information. You start to say like, wow, let's start a reparations campaign in this town. And then you start to build relationship uh, between those communities. You know, it's just, you either have a feedback loop of collective liberation or a feedback loop of collapse and re-traumatization. So yeah, it's a, it's just so for me, so um, I, the word that coming up is exciting that with this deeper recognition of trauma, we can actually at the root level, start undoing the domination system that lives in us, that lives in our relationships and that lives in culture and free up our nervous system for all these other pieces, joy and creativity. And, you know, Adrian Marie Brown writes pleasure activism is the new activism is like, how are we leading with this open nervous system and this open heartedness and how transformative that is. Yeah. Beautiful. So much wisdom, Ethan. Thank you. You know, you just mentioned the word excitement, and I was thinking about that when you shared about how when we're flooded with uh, a trauma response, we aren't as we aren't as able to listen. We don't have as much capacity to take in what's being shared at these experiences. And I, I noticed actually yesterday that the same thing can be said when we're really excited. 
when we're flooded with adrenaline and you know we have all this energy and all of a sudden I'm, I'm i'm kind of caught up in my own excitement and i'm not actually paying attention to the environment around me and and that's something i've seen when i was a photojournalist and uh, covering different protests it's like i would get so in the moment of wanting to capture the the image that i would actually put myself in dangerous situations so i think there, uh -huh. there's something to be shared about that as well is that it, it's not always like just trauma but maybe there's um maybe there's just a point to make about maintaining some level of um equilibrium and equanimity and uh, a general sense of presence and awareness in these spaces so that we're we are showing up from more of that open-hearted place um and not necessarily from like a part of us that's just flooded with adrenaline <laughs> yeah well that that also can be burdens actually that make us like seek just adventure all the time and it looks from the outside mm -hmm. really healthy but it can be a distraction or just um yeah i mean we in the activist community can also just be so centered at activism and that can also be a burden part that is i'm so distressed by the pain of the world that i'm just reacting and reacting and reacting and in that reaction often replaying the very patterns i want to actually undo Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there can be, it's important to look at in self-connection, what is motivating this response? You know, did something just happen that elicited a trauma response with my family and all of a sudden a protector comes in, a burden protector that's like, hey, let's go sea kayak or let's go climb a tree. You know, that motivation is very different because I'm, I'm fleeing. I want to like not feel it to wow, there was just a response that was uncomfortable. I did the self-connection. I go to my family and say, like, this is what comes up for me. You know, I was feeling judged. And then we have connection across relationships. And then I feel relaxed. And then I'm like, wow, let's go climb a tree. Yeah. The same action with two totally different motivations. Mm. And that's also when we do this work, if I'm, if we go to Uma Farm and doing reparations, two people can be giving resources from from what they have to this amazing black-led farm. And on, if you just had a video, it would look like, oh, it's the same act. One person might be their motivation. Be like, if I give this money, I really look good. I'll be a good person. People will think I'm a good person. That's a different motivation than, hey, I'm really aware that. 97% of rural land is white owned and that through terror campaigns, land was taken from black farmers and that there's been from white supremacy, a full economic divide. And this is my family. We're a beloved community as Martin Luther King said. So what's arising is I just want to take this extra resource and, and give them the justice of having land to grow food on like my family has. So that's a totally different motivation yeah. than the other. So looking at motivation, and again, the impor important part in trauma work is all parts are welcome. If we then realize we're doing an act to look good or to be like woke or whatever else, we meet that part and we're like, oh, there's this part that really wants to belong. So we have compassion for it. Then that part can relax. So that's important in this work too, is there, there's no pathologizing any parts. You know, someone who might be punching someone in the face, 
you might think they're a violent person, but we might look at their life that they had sexual abuse as a child. And the only way to be safe was to punch people who came at them. It was a family member or someone who was doing that harm and that they, whenever they feel unsafe, that's what they do. So then we have compassion that that part, even if they're physically hitting someone, protected them when they were eight. And so we have to first, it's really radical work. You, you have to thank that part like, wow, you protected me from this harm and thank you. And now how do we take that burden part and update it that we're now in a safer place and we can do a different strategy to protect ourselves. So once we can appreciate that part, that, that, that part in us relaxes and then it, the healing can start, the unburdening. Even when we give someone em- empathy listening, like Brene Brown and their wonderful work on shame, which shame tw- you know, entwines with trauma and all these pieces, and that even when we give empathy, it's an unburdening. Like we're unburdening both legacy burdens and personal traumas just from being heard and witnessed. So you don't, you know, that's what's amazing. And we just had one of the head trainers of 20 years from the IFS Institute and their message wasn't like, I've been doing these tools for 20 years. Here's how you have to do it. It's just like, look, it's just, if, if you saw, I love this part of the training that if, if, if a little girl fell over there and hurt their knee, everyone would get up and go over there to try to help the healing. But if it's an internal child that is activated, everyone most often because of our cultural training will change the subject or do something else or go to fix it. It's like, all you have to do is respond to that person's inner child as you would to the outer child, just with empathy and curiosity. Curiosity is one of the, um, one of the aspects of self energy. It's just, we're curious. And then healing wants to happen. It's like all this trauma, uh, and his name's Chris Burris, this trainer said, Trauma is like holding a beach ball under the water. So when you hold the beach ball under the ocean, it wants to come up, but we're holding it down. And holding it down takes amazing energy. That's why we're all so exhausted and overwhelmed and depressed. We're holding all this down, but the body wants to heal. Other cultures know this and let it arise. But once we let go, the ball will just come up to the surface to heal. So when you see someone you really love having a trauma response and yelling at you, that means they trust you enough that the beach ball is coming up. And how do I have my system ready to not take it personally and be like, here I am. I want to know what you're angry about. I want to know what I did that, that awoke in this anger. And all of a sudden, and the anger is welcome. Like, again, with consent that it's safe. If I have a huge trauma response to anger because anger meant I was going to get hurt, I'm probably not the person to hold space. So this is why we need community because we can also do the trauma Olympics where it's like, I can sit with anybody. And then we're in the domination system again, because we have to recognize, Oh, Tucker's doing this. And now I'm flooded. Hey, Tucker, I'm totally flooded. I love you. Can I get self-connected and then come back to support you or find someone else who feels totally full of compassion and curiosity or more access to that. So we also have to be in communication in our families, in our communities, um, who has the capacity to hold who in this moment. Yeah. So what happens when it's more than just one individual? For example, I've been to protests before where it seems like by several individuals 
having a flooded response and maybe showing up with just vitriol or um, in, a, in a way that feels very um, like it's coming from a very traumatized part, it seems to almost take on a viral effect where it spreads and it gives more people permission. And we see this online. You don't see this online because you're not online, but I see this <laughs> yeah. online all the time yeah. where it's almost, um, you know, it sets the tone of the group collective and then it, it, that just becomes the new, the new norm. I have two questions. How does one work in a space like that without themselves kind of falling into that conformity pattern of the collective? And then two, is there a place to step in and intervene as an individual that's noticing this in a collective? First, I just want to really say that every situation is unique. So what I'm trying to map here is that there's no one solution to a situation, especially based on your positionality. Um, Mm -hmm. And that basically having community and knowing the tools and that support and working on all three levels, you'll slowly come up with the, what is it to do in that situation? So that's, you know, just important to be known that it's just um, the patterns are when people do this work, like I think of Kazuhaga and East Point, that Umbrellas of the Possibility Alliance, like their wonderful book, Healing Resistance, is just about that. How do we resist in a way that heals and doesn't create harm? And that's the question you're getting at is when, when I'm doing the self-connection work and the across relational work, I can, go into, uh, I can go into an ungrounded space and help ground it. It's called the field, like you're, you're, the, the self, self-energy of curiosity and compassion awakens that in others. And when our nervous system, if I, you know, anger is something I've dealt with growing up where there was a lot of fighting and a lot of physical violence uh, in my community, that when I see someone else get anger, angry, my burden angry part can get hooked and become awakened. So same thing happens when someone has a trauma response that mirrors ours, then all of a sudden the crowd starts moving that direction. A great example that uh, I heard from a friend was there was going to be another public execution with death penalty, you know, and everyone was at the prison. It was in California and there was a fence there and it started to get really aggressive as the time came and people were throwing things and climbing the fence and the police were getting agitated and it was just building. And all of a sudden people noticed that in the middle of the crowd, it was totally calm and there was like a hole in the middle. And I may have shared the story before because it really touched me that there's this like hole and then everyone around the hole, like if it was a donut, the crowd was a donut with this hole in the middle. Everyone around the hole was really calm and centered. And as you went further from the hole, there's more agitation and like slamming on the fence and yelling and throwing things and the escalating uh, polarity. And so my friend walked over to see what was happening. And in the middle of the donut hole, were 20 Buddhist monks meditating. So they took self-connection. Sangha, as Buddha would put it, the three jewels of Buddhism is the Sangha. As so many spiritual traditions, when two or more are gathered, Christ consciousness will be there. Like all spiritual traditions point to community as the bedrock. And then they went to the system of domination, this public execution in the uh, industrial prison complex and they brought all this grounded nervous system energy to that 
they didn't stay just in their their monastery. They came to heal. That's the bodhisattva. And then you saw that they were grounding hundreds of people. And that's also the power. It's, it's grounding people so that our response is coming from one that's going to be healing resistance instead of polarizing resistance. So that's just an example of how if you're ready, you know yourself connected you go there and you start to become a field of awakening other people's self-energy so that we can be more creative more confident more courageous these are all things that happen um so i think that's the great practice is we're practicing together that's going to be more available um when we show up and then we start to shift the field and de-escalate while dismantling which is a art form um the art of embodying the world we want to inhabit now it's it's a it's an art form so and i also think it's important when we're doing this trauma healing work to know the legacy burden so if i'm doing the in in this particular training those who volunteered their time were mainly male identifying and there was queer trans a few people of color in the training when they shared my role is to listen I'm not the expert in those areas. So those who are experiencing, I'm affected by heteropatriarchy, it lives inside me, but the recipients of those systems of domination, that's also when we're doing this work, we have to both know we all collective liberation and we have to know that, okay, I need to listen and learn about these impacts. So, you know, that's the other dances. Who are you in the circle with healing? And when are you listening? When are you sharing? Um, yeah, it's, it's, again, like I said, it's the deep work and there, thank goodness, there's amazing leaders like, uh, Mariam Kaba is one of my, uh, just through their life and their writings of fumbling towards repair. It's a workbook for a workbook for community accountability and facilitators in working with deep harm. And are we ready to actually heal without the domination system, guns and prisons and and people are leaning into these these questions in real time with real experience. And that's who I want to learn from um, and grow. So, yeah. That might be a beautiful segue into uh, the, our discussion about the archetypes of change. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's a great segue. So we're now, you know, looking at how do we heal internally how do we heal across relationships how do we heal these domination systems and so that we have the beloved community both for nature and for human beings when i talk to anybody no one's like yeah i'm glad we're in the sixth extinction oh i'm glad we have the highest prison population in the country yeah there might be some outliers that are corporations making money from that system but the average person you you talk to wants something different and this is the um, amazing potential is not only healing all those three simultaneously within our own capacity and being compassionate with ourselves. When we connect, and I've talked about this in other interviews to our vocation, we then get this extra energy in our nervous system. It's like we're linking to our destiny, linking to our purpose. And it shows when a collective has a collective purpose, the amount of conflict and agitation 
and overwhelm drops significantly. And that's, I've seen that when I went to the ninth ward in Hurricane Katrina, people's houses were gone and, and in Mississippi, hundreds of people who are total strangers from all kinds of backgrounds, religious orientation, gender, race. We were just so clear what our purpose was. There was, I tasted the beloved community. And so this is these archetypes that um, Elise Balding originally, that's the first time I came across them. It was a wonderful peacemaker and studying, study peace. Um, came up with the first three. And when I, uh, when I read them, I had just come home from the WTO protest in Seattle. And they really resonated with me. These are kind of macro areas we show to transform the world or bring peace. And what I find when I share these with people, they can find the river that's calling them. Some people have a few of these archetypes in them, but most people have one or two that are really like, yes, they hear it and like, thank goodness that's part of the new world we want to live in. And I think these are really helpful along with this trauma healing is getting hooked to your purpose to unleash the gifts that only you have, which we've talked about before. So the other exciting thing before I name the um, archetypes is I love in this book by Mariam Kaba, people can be overwhelmed because everything needs to change. How we eat, how we transportation, how we relate, how we deal with harm. None of it's working. Anyone I ask, whether libertarian or anarchist or evangelical, no matter, they all say things are really not going well. But the exciting piece I love this quote from Miriam Kaba. Changing everything might sound daunting, but it also means there are many places to start, infinite opportunities to collaborate, and endless imaginative interventions and experiments to create. Let's begin our abolitionist journey, not with the question, what do we have now and how can we make it better? Instead, let's ask, what can we imagine for ourselves in the world? If we do that, then boundless possibilities of a more just world await us. So these archetypes lean into changing everything because it means whatever you're drawn towards and gifted at, that needs to be changed. So we need you. Um, the first three, and then I'm going to hand it back to you, Tucker, for more of your great questions and curiosities that Elise Balding named were peacekeepers, peacemakers, and peace builders. And I'll flesh those out a bit. Peacekeepers, they're the ones that just want to show up and stop harm, stop business as usual. Uh, they're the folks who show up in the front lines, whether Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter or any of these movements, like any opportunity to slow down harm, whether it's a coal plant that's affecting a community in Detroit, they want to show up and stop it now. And that's the peacekeeper archetype. And the peacemaker archetype is they're called to heal between people. A lot of this is nonviolent communication, the deep listening project between Palestine and Israel, restorative circles, restorative justice. They want to transform conflict between people and keep a dialogue going and a dialogue of healing and, and learning. And so a peacemaker is focused on how do we stop the polarity and the conflict? And those are some, you know, some of the examples I used. And then peace builders, 
they want to recreate a society that doesn't create harm. So peace builders are often people who are trying to grow their own food instead of doing it from an industrial uh, harmful system. They want to work outside of capitalism and experiment with trading and barter, gift economics, reparations. So they want to get to the root of what's causing the harm in the exterior realm. Um, so they're going to ride a bike instead of flying, um, things like that. So these three separately were all like, yes, they all are great. But what I saw at the WTO, once I read this, I'm like, oh my gosh, if we don't celebrate all of them, they turn on each other. And that's exactly what the domination system wants. So I saw the peacekeepers in the front line judging people who were trying to communicate with the police or trying to de-escalate. And then the peace builders were going up to the peacekeepers and be like, what are you doing? You're drinking Starbucks and wearing Nike. You're a total sellout. You know, and then there's just this, you're not, this archetype, you're not honoring this archetype that they're all needed. So it was such an aha moment where I realized, wow, if we can name these, like, yeah, I most resonate with peace building. You know, like, how do we build macro systems that create less harm, slavery, loss of species? And other people are peacemaker. How do we make people communicate and fall in love with each other again and create the beloved community? And also, how do we honor the people who are like, oh, fish farms going up in the town extracting water? They're the first ones down to lay on the ground and block the bulldozer. Um, and that they're all, they're all sacred roles. And how do we not have them turn on each other? Beautiful. I, I love this stuff. <laughs> I get all jazzed listening to archetypes. And I'm wondering if you could flesh out the peacekeepers, pe peacemakers, and peace builders with maybe just a few examples of, um, I don't know, real world vocational roles that people could play outside of the context of frontlines activism and how these might show up. Yeah, vocationally. Yeah. Well, first I want to say, because we now realize that the cultural domination systems are affecting every relationship and affecting our own nervous systems. Uh, the front lines are also everywhere. Right, right. To undo the domination. I knew you were going to say And <laughs> without that, with that said, there are places of more acute harm, like when a pipeline's going illegally through wetlands that are hunting grounds for indigenous people in Minnesota, and when actually indigenous women and children being disappeared and no one's following up. Uh, that, that, you know, there's an acuity, but also that it's happening everywhere. And there's more archetypes too. So once we, I had these three, started to talk to movement leaders, both in Europe and the United States, cross-cultural, and we fleshed out nine more archetypes uh, to build off Elise Boulding. Um, a lot of these were developed at the ARC, a Gandhian community um, with myself and some members there in uh, an interfaith community in France. So you know, real life application is just like I said, like someone who gets into nonviolent communication or restorative circles or all of these modalities. You might be a peacemaker without naming it where you just see conflict in your family or friends and you're the one who'll go to people and be like, hey, can I share what I think is happening for Tucker? And then they'd come to me, can I share what's happening for Ethan? And that peacemakers are just constantly trying to bring people together instead. They really work against the uh, the individualism and separateness. That's like 
their their leverage point is to undo that legacy burden. So remember, we're community again. Is that what you're looking for? Those kind of examples? Yeah, exactly. That'd be really helpful for me. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, and a peacekeeper is just someone who you see. I, you know, I have a lot of peacekeeper energy. So someone calls and says, "Hey, it's COVID. It's zero degrees. We need people in Minnesota for line three. And I'm like, "Okay, I'm ready to go." And my family, my wife and daughters, are ready to support me and bring people to just be right there at the center of harm and have and trying to bring again the self-connection into the front lines so yeah peacekeepers are responding to harm and that might be harm where there's a hate crime in town and you're the first one to go to the city hall or to the school and be like this has to stop like i i love elise bolding a wonderful lesbian activist who not elise bolding sorry barbara deming has the two hands one is like this harm must stop now and the other hand is open saying and you're welcome to be part belong and be part of the beloved community but both are important like this harm needs to stop and as it stops know that you're welcome you're not an enemy and so peacekeepers are you know i think in their best our typical stance are going out to do the healing resistance that kazuhaga was talking about so they're just responding and it could be again something in their town like there's a PFAS or a frack ejection well or there's actually a, a mass shooting you know it could be anything and the um, peacekeepers just responds stop the harm now and so many we could list thousands of examples and the peace builder is what we'd see we could look at like permaculture or indigenous wisdom of living with the land um, Peace builders want to create a new justice system. So we do this to free us by Mariam Kaba's how do we heal without prison and punishment with real accountability so no one else is harmed. Um, peace builders will grow their food or build their own house so they're not having to extract resources from around the world. They want to develop systems that people can use too, like peace builders might work to get a bike lane in their town. So they want parallel systems with less harm. So they're into building those systems so people can use them, a farmer's market, so people have access. And then someone else might come and be like, okay, an access will give twice as much of the farmer's market than your, for your food stamps. Like peace builders create systems so people can access less harmful ways to get food, shelter, clothing, entertainment. That was great. Thank you so much. You know, I will add here about the other nine archetypes, but I'm wondering maybe just if we stick with these three for a minute, how does, to tie this conversation full circle, how does our trauma, our early childhood patternings, our, you know, not to mention our education, our background, where we grew up, our different various identities, how does that all inform um, which of these archetypes we might feel most comfortable being in or what percentage of each we might feel is our makes up our you know average way of showing up in the world that's such a great question um, this is talked about in the book no bad parts by richard schwartz in the internal family systems model that um, peacekeepers for example often have to respond to an emergency in their childhood like my dad died and instead of pressing charges, my mom joined Mothers Against Drunk Driving and I have a part, a protective part that I really appreciate that wants to really stop harm because of the 
the the deep grief I went through because of a structural addiction is you know what led to my dad dying is and that I've gone through addiction I have compassion for addiction but there's a cost and so that burden protector can really get activated and I think a lot of those in the peacekeeper archetype often enter it with a burden part that's not again all parts are welcome they're still trying to protect from harm but their strategy may not be as effective so in each of these we're trying to again it's lifetime work i think leila saad and the book me and white supremacy is like yeah let's be good ancestors and let's relax a little bit let's not get caught up into perfectionism or judgment this is a lifetime work to heal our nervous system to heal our relationships and undo the domination system and i find relaxing in my system right now like oh okay so just step by step i do the trauma healing i'm a, you know i feel like i'm a more self-connected confident compassionate curious peacekeeper now than i was 10 years ago and i think that's what our goal is get into these archetypes and then also keep the healing happening and peacemakers can also have a burden part that's like if i kept peace in the family there wouldn't be violence so they might have had a strategy to really de-escalate people's nervous systems at a young age. And part of that was uh, beautiful and part of that was driven by fear of violence. So that could be, you know, in the peacemaker archetype. archetype. I always have, my wife always tells me I have trouble with that word. I'm a little dyslexic. So I have a part that's a little embarrassed that I'll say like archetype instead of archetype. <laughs> people listening will be like, he can't even say the word. Who am I listening to? <laughs> so, you know, well, just seeing I, that. My, my part relates to that. As, uh, as someone with dyslexia, I, I have that part arise quite often interviewing with you. But I think we're both doing great, Ethan. I feel good. Yeah. About <laughs> oh, just by naming that part, I feel more relaxed. We're just like, yeah, yeah so we're just doing the best we can. <laughs> so, yeah, so that the peacemaker may, as they're doing peacemaker work, heal that burden part. And then their peacemaking just becomes more powerful again, that, that, that healing change. And we have more open-heartedness and that's always going to uh, help the work of collective liberation. So yeah, that's, this is a great question. We have to be aware that we enter these archetypes both with a mix often of our true calling and our true purpose. And we enter the archetype with some burdens that draws to that archetype than just to be aware of it. And as we heal, we actually might switch in these kind of archetypical areas of change. Yeah, beautiful. I know that you're a big fan of the Enneagram and you know, there's many different typologies, astrology and uh, Myers-Briggs and human design, et cetera, et cetera. And then of course there's developmental psychology and these different um, stages that we can um, sometimes show up in the world from and different stages have different capacity like some are more active some are more receptive and what I'm curious about is then bringing these archetypes in you know how does one use these archetypes or uh, you know wear them in a way that feels like a superpower cape and not like a um, something that might burden them or confine them into a box 
you know, maybe someone um, comes up along a situation and they say, oh, that's something a peacekeeper would do. And I'm not really a peacekeeper. I'm more of a, I'm more of a peace builder. And so how can we both have these archetypes, use them to um, allow us to show up in more capacities and more ways while also remaining emergent to the moment. And really, I guess, to me, for me in my own life, what it comes down to is just tuning into my, my heart or my body or some deeper sense of intuition and deeper whisper and however I show up, <laughs> regardless of how one might um, identify it or label it afterwards, it, it doesn't really matter. It's more just about doing what, what feels right and true in that moment. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I find when you hear, I think all of the 11 or plus or minus archetypes, I find often in groups where I share them, there's a relief that they have a place in collective liberation, they have a place because often we do think of work as just the peacekeepers. And once people realize, oh, I might be a, we'll go through these other archetypes, but a peace giver, I just, I love being in that camp and cooking good food and feeding people for the work, or you could be peace healer that those folks who showed up with tons of herbs and the paramedics and herbalists that showed up in the ninth ward, and they were such a crucial piece of the superorganism of the people that were going out under the curfews to help rebuild homes, and maybe there was a higher risk of physical danger. So that's, I think, the goal is that these are just rivers of, of archetypical places to change culture. And you'll find your own, your own current within the river, or you might find a rock in the middle of the river. Like it just helps people kind of enter. Like I find a lot of people, one that really is exciting to people is peace creators. So people who use singing and giant puppets and poetry and artists and all of these things, murals, you know, they, they felt like, well, what's art in the revolution? But then all of a sudden you, you name this archetype peace creators using art and creativity as a way to shift the stories and bring beauty and bring play to, un, to heal ourselves and each other and the larger system. So, you know, the Hopis, I love this quote, so I probably said it before, those who tell the stories rule the world. So people all of a sudden are like, oh, I'm an artist and I belong. I have a place. I have a place in this, all these rivers going to the ocean. Like if the ocean is actually the beloved community, that all these rivers are taking us there and they're, they're each sacred. And I have a little bit of, you know, peace creator and peacekeeper when these arch archetypes fuse, beautiful things happen. So we had a piano player and people dancing to block the pipeline and we created this giant uh wood duck 12 foot mama wood duck and we locked down his baby wood duck so all of a sudden it brought a whole new flavor to peacekeeping archetype archetype workers and police were like well look at this duck i gotta film this and show this to my kids and they're asking us why are you here and all of a sudden our supposed enemy is recording us for their children of why we're blocking the mountain valley pipeline with a giant duck <sighs> And so the peace creator and the, the, the kind of fusion of these rivers, you know, when two rivers come together, all this like dynamic peace happens in the ecosystem and with the flow of the water. 
So part of it is playing with this. It's like, what if I take a little bit of peace creators and mix it in with peace builders? All of a sudden, you have a, a food forest that has all these incredible sculptures in it that interact and you can climb on them and climb up sculptures to get the high fruit and the peach tree. You know, infinite possibilities once we both identify and then also identify the archetype that we don't feel activated at all. What happens when we go help make giant puppets? Maybe we'll learn something about ourselves. You know, so it's just a map to play with, to really find where our giftedness can come into the world. I love that. So let's flesh out the map. What are the other archetypes you got? Yeah. So uh, from peacemaker, peacekeeper, peace builder, we, uh, in kind of order, the, the, the fourth one that was named, and this was collectively named by hundreds of people leaning in and some core people like myself and um, that we're holding this over, you know, the last two decades, peace creator, which I named, and this is cultural change through creation. Bread and puppet theater is a great example of this. Um, and all, all kinds of, you know, murals that we can see Pete Seeger, you know, you can see these singers, um, Michael Fronte, like people who just use these arts is a way to actually change the way we see the world. It, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, and this medium may be poetry. Um, we see so many amazing poets that just go beyond regular language to open our hearts. And so this is the peace creators and it could be local in your town. It could be in your front yard. It could be in a movement space like Occupy. A lot of peace creators went to Occupy movement and created amazing beauty and imagery. Um, yeah, you might just be providing graphics at your cabin for work to heal from survivors of domestic violence. There's so many applications. So that's peace creator. Patch Adams is a great example um, we can take of using clowning and hospitals and orphanages and using play. Peace creators often use play um, to, to make change. Um, the next one, the, the fifth one that we came to in order, and this was, I was at a, you know, interface center and it um, was peace breathers. So a lot of mystics from all world traditions say like if we didn't have the monastics breathing peace or prayer or holding loving kindness, the world would be in a much darker place in this moment. So celebrating the monastics in all tradition who hold prayer, like the, the monks that were praying right in the, at the prison gates, uh, public prayer, peace events, uh, people who are, teach the art of mindfulness and devotion, people who are, who are just wanting to be peace. Thich Nhat Hanh, who just passed, was a great example of a peace breather. It's like, how do we just, wherever we go, peace pilgrim, how do we just be peace? And, you know, within peace builders and peace breathers, they all interact. So there's a wonderful book, Radical Dharma, by uh, a collection of black Buddhists. And it's talking race, love, and liberation. So that's where we see, like, peace breathers leaning in with peacekeepers. So 
if we're going to have the beloved community, we also have to remove all the barriers, sexism, racism, gender, ableism. We have to move all the barriers so everyone can find their archetype, archetype and live their gifts. So these barriers must be taken down. So, you know, peace breathers like Thich Nhat Hanh created Engage Buddhism. So yes, the root was being peace. And then from being peace, that self-connection and that connection to ancestors, that connection to the invisible. Peace breathers are also connected to the invisible, the ancestral lines. Um, yeah, and bringing that to the world in their relationships and to the systems of domination. So that's peace breathers. And again, a shout out to each archetype, what incredible work they're doing. And when those archetypes come together, all kinds of new combinations happen we didn't think of to, to create systemic and personal change. Any questions about peace creator, peace breather before I move on? No, you're doing great. So, and you know, the listeners might be like resonating with all of them and that's great too. Um, that leads to a next one. But again, most people usually have one or two. There's like, that's the place that they, and then when you're doing your vocation, again, you have this, this extra energy from the universe, from whatever you call it, floods you because you are walking your sacred path that you were designed to do. The next one is peace messengers. Peace messengers are the storytellers, the prophets, the teachers. You might write a pamphlet. You might uh, give a sermon. You might be uh, writing news articles. You might be creating a documentary. You're actually the modern storyteller. So peace messengers are bringing the message, which is so important, and they're able to articulate the message so people can hear it. So... Um, there are a lot of, I see Adrian Lee Brown as an incredible peace messenger bringing these ideas of emergent strategy and both through practice, but then articulating them in a way that everyone's like, yes, yes. Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hammer, these voices, Fannie Lou Hammer went on public television, spoke about what was happening in the South with the white supremacy and racism. And just was a peace messenger, was able to open the hearts. So yeah, just holding up the people who are tracking what's happening in the world and writing stories in whatever whatever form. And these are the peace messengers that are bringing incredible maps and ideas. And, you know, those are important. The peace messengers, Gil Scott Heron says the first revolution is when you change your mind. Peace messengers are helping us change our mind. And it's a sacred work. And then we go around, um, the, the, the drawing I have here is of a flower. There's just a flower and each petal is one of the um, archetypes. So the next one is peace healers. And these are people who want to heal physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Uh, they provide, providing help in clinics around the world and access to health, mental health, physical health. They're in Embedded healers, people who are herbalists, who are naturopaths, who are surgeons, therapists, you know, they're just wanting um, their arch archetype is heal. Let's, let's heal these four areas of the human spirit, the human mind, the human emotional body, physical body. And knowing that when we are healed, 
that's revolutionary work in all areas, the personal, interpersonal, and cultural. And peace healers also combine with peacekeepers, like I was saying, those who show up, you know, when we went up to line three, a bunch of local herbalists gave us hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of tinctures and medicine that they grew and made to bring. Someone else um, from the indigenous community gave a bunch of moose meat. And so, you know, that they were part of the impact we brought because we brought all these uh, healing tinctures and medicine and dried medicine to the frontline camp. So again, they all interact in so many ways. So peace healers may not be a, a registered herbalist or doctor. They just might be doing the work quietly one relationship at a time, talking to people about diet and exercise and, and um, mindfulness to not be stressed. So raise up a, a recognition and, and, in celebration of the peace healers that are listening in. And so then we go to the, the kind of most, most invisibilized, I think. And th this one came out of my time in Missouri. We were living next to Don and Dana Miller, who were an older couple who had cattle and had a very different worldview than we did at the Possibility Alliance. And yet they were showing up anytime anyone left, someone with dreadlocks and tattoos who's an anarchist tree sitter, show up with a little bag of food for the train. And even when Don was healing from cancer, would come over and help with our animals or give people rides. Like they just did so much for us. And we're like, wait, there's no archetype that they fit into. But what they're doing is revolutionary for us. And we came up with this um, peace givers. And they're just called to serve those around them. And it could be uh, supporting children, it's supporting another project, hospitality, showing up ready to help, sharing resources. It's just, they're just, whatever the response is, they're just uplifting by just being, in a sense, good neighbors. And I think there are millions of un, unrecognized, uncelebrated peace givers that are just kind of, I feel like the backbone of a lot of this work because they're humbly doing it in their family and their community. Like Don and Dana, we'd meet people, single mom was like, how'd you get the land? Well, Don and Dana bought the land for us and now we have cows and food and, and nobody would know. Like the peace givers are really humble and are, are kind of silently like the mycorrhizal fungal, like lifting up the movement to celebrate the peace givers. And then we have um, an interesting one that showed up later was a peace bridger. There are people who actually want to just connect all of these archetypes, help bring people together. What happens when the artists and the activists get together? What, what happens when we get the peacemakers and the peace breathers together. What happens when we have the healers and messengers? They're really interested in creating an integral movement where they're all celebrated. So the peace bridger is just someone who wants to bring these together. I have more later in my life because we can switch. I'm really excited. I reached out to the IFS Institute, Internal Family Systems, and said, hey, we're doing a lot of activism, anti-racism work, mutual aid, 
uh, reparations and we would love to learn more about trauma healing. They're like, great, let's work together. So all of a sudden the Peace Bridger is like bringing together these groups to create new combinations of healing and possibility. Does that make sense? Any questions about those that I just laid out? I want to make sure people get the sense of the river. Again, it's a felt sense. It doesn't have to be examples sometimes. It's just like, oh, yes, that's what I love to do. Yeah, they all definitely resonate for me and, and make a lot of sense. Um, was that the complete list? Yeah, we have um, two new ones that have come more recently that I think are still being fleshed out and developed. And what I want to share with the listeners too is this map can expand. It started with three from Elise Balding and now we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 10, um, That's the wonderful thing is what's another river that would like resonate with lots of people and be like, yes. And then once we can have that map, how do we mix these waters? You know, the alchemy of mixing these uh, archetypes of change. So the, the other two, we have the, Peace rewilders and realizing a lot of the change was between the human world uh, and culture and individuals. And so peace rewilders are really, their call is to reconnect with species, ecosystems, the land. Um, this, we can see this archetype in so much of the rewilding work and also all the indigenous wisdom in nature-based cultures that are we're turning to right now because we need to reconnect. Uh, one of these legacy burdens is materialism, human supremacy, like we're not with species, but we're above. And, um, you know, so, so individualism and separateness is another legacy burden. So we're really, I believe we're traumatized by being disconnected from all this amazing community around us, the trees, the birds, so Peace Rewilders help themselves and others reconnect to a larger interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, that our, our community is so much larger than the human community. And how do we, yeah, how do we, how do we bring that in? And there's, yeah, such beautiful work happening on this front in so many places. A beautiful book, Undrowned, by Alexis Pauline Gums is Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals. This is a great example of peace rewilding, looking at marine mammals and how they care for each other and how we can learn from them. So yeah, that's the peace rewilders is their focus is bringing in the non-human into collective liberation. And then the final one we have is peace liberators. Um, and this one came out of leaning in with folks from East Point Peace Academy that was doing work in the prisons, realizing there, there's an archetype that wants to free people so that they can unlock their gifts. So they f literally help free people trapped in prisons or in war zones or refugees or economically trapped. And so their vocation is how do we, how do we l help liberate people in actually physical cages? and help them then be part of this amazing work of self-liberation, relational liberation, and cultural liberation. So it's a whole other archetype that is just um, focusing on making sure 
everyone, regardless of background, ability, race, can be part of the beloved community. So that's what we have right now with the archetypes. And yeah, once you connect with one, uh, you can start looking around your town, like uh, where are the, uh, I feel like I'm a peace creator. And then you'll look around, all of a sudden you'll see them everywhere. Or you might be someone who's like, wow, I'm really excited to combine the peace rewilders with the peacekeepers. All of a sudden you're going to the front lines and planting a food forest to block the pipeline. I, I don't know what it will look like, but um, yeah, to start leaning into the alchemy. So then we have this very uh, diverse, expansive map of both of uh, how do we change our own heart and heal? How do we heal our relationships? How do we heal this collective uh, system that's broken with beautiful people wanting to free themselves from it and have the world we want to live in? And then our modes of change, we now have this archetypical map of ways in which for human history, people have been offering uh, healing for our culture and ourselves. So hopefully some of these maps will be useful. They've been super useful to us and just are like a jumping point for a deeper dive into these patterns. You know, Facebook and, uh, you know, all these, all these systems that can oppress us and make us feel separate and depressed. They were created by people looking at patterns. The, the creators of it knew like, oh, this is going to be a dopamine hit. This is going to get kids addicted. And so we can look at patterns as a way of creating more oppression. And sometimes it's accidental. People create something that think is, is going to be helpful and it ends up being harmful. Plastic. You know, people create plastic. Oh, it's light. Look, we can move things. I don't think they were trying to create something that was going to flood the entire food chain and microplastics and create cancer. So sometimes it's accidental, but I feel like for all of us who want to have the beloved community, when we look at patterns, we can then, I feel like, be more effective patterns in ourselves, patterns in our family, patterns with our ancestors, patterns in culture, patterns in our gifts, in what river we want to run the rapids, I just feel like we, we, our analysis increases, our clarity increases, which is one of the self-led qualities is clarity, and we were more effective. So hopefully this will be of use. And um, yeah, I'm open up to more questions. But thanks for, so much for letting me share this next layer of tools that have helped us. And um, yeah, it's always great to talk with you, Tucker. So I'm opening back uh, up to you if you have mm -hmm. final questions or thoughts. Sure. Thank you, Ethan. I'm curious where teachers would fall, which archetype might embody teachers. I'm thinking of Coral, your next door neighbor, who runs this beautiful alternative education program where she brings kids out into woods and um, and allows them to kind of play and, and learn, learn through playing. Um, so teachers and then also maybe parents uh, that don't necessarily have an active vocation in the world or aren't able to show up uh, on the front lines for whatever reason, but they're really the, the caregivers that are taking care of either the elderly or, or the children. Yeah, I think that's a great place to lean into. Uh, I see a combination for teachers of 
being peace messengers and peace creators. What Coral's doing is part of peace building, showing kids what's edible and healing in the natural world and how to live with less of an impact to other species. Doing So I see combinations, but it's an interesting thought of when we're actually mentoring as parents or teachers or elders that they're, yeah, that could be a really new, it's emerging right here on the phone call. <laughs> I'm going to start wrestling with it. The archetype of really in a healthy way, being a mentor or elder parent, which is um, really, we look at parents and how the parent in the tribe raises the child is what becomes culture. There's raising free people by Akila Richards, which is all about schooling and unschooling is liberation healing work. It's like, yeah, that's such a core piece of this whole tree. If we raise yeah. children in a healthy way, they're not going to have as many personal traumas and they're going to have much healthier interpersonal relationships and they're going to understand there's a larger system pressing down on them. It is a relief to know I'm not crazy. Part of all this tension I feel and anger and hopelessness in me is not because I'm broken. It's because the, there's a lot of part of the cultures that, that's affecting me right now as we speak that are really broken and unhealthy. And in some of them incredibly violent. So that can also be an incredible relief for a child because children feel it. They feel the field. And when they realize in child, children often want to claim like, oh, my parents are fighting. It's my fault. When we're younger, we can default to that. And so that's so important to let children be aware of these larger systems in a beautiful way that, hey, we're a little separated from nature. So let's, you know, let's, Let's go out and put pollinator plants in like a way that creates. I love this quote, and I think I'm going to love to lean in with this new archetype of the elder parent teacher. Um, but this is from, I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, Kwame Ture. It says, when you see people call themselves revolutionary, always talking about destroying, 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 but never talking about building or creating, they're not revolutionary. They do not understand the first thing about revolution. It's creating. So, you know, I think as we talk about teachers and children, these archetypes allow us to move into areas of creating. We're creating something, parallel systems. We're creating local puppetry that in a joyful way addresses these issues of the day. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's a beautiful, I'm going to lean into that and, I hope other people listening are having the same ideas of you, Tucker. It's like, yeah, how do we keep expanding the map? And there's people who are going to see places in the maps that I can't see because of my positionality. And um, to begin to realize, like, yeah, to be part of this struggle right now for the beloved community, like Alejandro Lean says, the struggle for freedom is the next best thing to actually being free. Like the act of embodying liberation in a beloved community is the next best thing to actually total liberation for all beings because we're in it. We're in the creation of it. Mm. And um, yeah. And what the Bodhisattva, I also want to share, like if we just think of Tony Morrison says the function of freedom is to free someone else. If we just look at this map as like, how am I going to be free? Now that's an important first step, the self-connection, but you know, a new definition of sovereignty means that none of us are free unless all of us are free. 
that's from Lakota Hardin, is that I love overlying this idea of the bodhisattva that if we help our sisters or brothers or other gender across the river, lo and behold, our boat's across the river because we've helped bring them. And so whenever we're in an act of helping heal anything, we're part of the beloved community and collective liberation. So, you know, it's a, it's an intense time right now with so much collapse and so much polarity. And it's also chaos and opportunity. There's in, like that, what I said before, everything needs to change. So you're needed at every single place um, is, is needing love and transformation. So, it's also an incredible potential to be part of this work, which I want to be part of and invite people into and also be invited into yeah. from others. So, yeah, thanks so much. Yeah. Yeah, I'm being reminded of the Howard Thurman quotes, one of my all-time favorite quotes. Uh, um, Do what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. And I feel like yeah. these archetypes are such a beautiful way of, you know, just going through the list of the nine or 10 that you listed off and just feeling, okay, where's the energy going in my body when I list off each one, when I list, when I list off breathers and messengers and healers, like how does my actual somatic body react to each of those? And um, what, 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 which one makes me come alive? And then what are the combinations that make me come alive? And then what are the moments and the experiences and the unfoldings that will, make a different combination come alive. And it, it just expands out into literal infinity because we are, you know, infinite beings uh, in an unbounded timeless space. Um, and so it, it's really exciting, you know, this is just a map and it's it's not the territory, but at the same time, it's, um, it's like a beautiful navigational system to find what brings us joy and, and, and doing so what, what helps bring others joy and, um, yeah, I, that's why I make this podcast is because every time I listen to you speak, Ethan, it, it brings me more alive and that impacts the rest of the day. And I feel like a, uh, I feel like a more alive human that can have more of an impact. And even if I don't have necessarily an impact on others, I, I just feel like the, the being that I am being in this moment of being is the being that. I want to be that is the archetype that I want to be and, and you have this capacity of unlocking that in me um, and so I thank you for that and it's always a gift to speak with you yeah thanks so much I love what you said about the somatics because I think a lot of this archetypical work is intuition and feeling like to move away from other legacy burdens of like just being in our head and not being in our bodies and um, yeah I love when I share these and people just hear the name and they're like, Oh my gosh, what is that? You know, it's a whole body response. Like it's a knowing. And again, uh, unleashing these gifts are uh, part of unleashing the new world we want to live in. So it all feeds back on us stuff. But yeah, that part that it is, it, it is thematic. It is like, we already have it in us. It's just, finding oh oh i remember that's the mountain i wanted to climb i'd forgotten because a lot of the culture makes us forget we're in at least my public school is like what's your job going to be how much money you're going to have and how much different if in kindergarten they're like oh here's and it might not be this map but here's piece archetypes of change what one do you resonate with and helping uh, as so many traditional cultures and indigenous cultures did helping find people find that place where they come alive 
and then you're such a gift. Um, and I love this by Anis Nin says like each friend, like in our friendship, each friend represents a world in us, a world not born until they arrive. And it is only by this meeting that a new world is born. So as we break through individualness and separateness and togetherness, we also, through archetypical maps and healing, we help each other remember. And then when we remember, it's, we, we're ready. We don't need to read a book or have a rule book. We just remember, and then we know exactly where we need to move into in this ecosystem and, and superorganism. So thanks for these conversations and helping me to remember too. And uh, many blessings to everyone listening on the call. And uh, thanks so much. Is there anything else on your end, Tucker? Yeah, I just wanted to invite viewers to email in or reach out to Ethan. His phone number is in the show notes. Um, my, you can reach out to me directly as well. And let us know if there are additional archetypes that you've thought of or different combinations that excite you. And also, I, I'm curious, Ethan, if you've, if, you've, um, had, if you've presented or had a conversation with your daughters, uh, Isla and Etta, about these archetypes. I know they're very familiar with the Enneagram and... Uh, Etta and I were reading astrology books last time I was with her. And so are these archetypes also something that, I don't know, could be a part of people's next dinner conversations or making it more of a family conversation? And um, yeah, how does that look in your, in your own household? Yeah, I, I think I, what, I, what I mainly do is name, as, as I've learned from nature-based cultures, naming the gifts in archetypical streams that we see our children moving towards naturally. And so I can name to better like, wow, I just really see the peace creator. Like, here's what they do. And then Edda will be like, yeah, because Edda's like amazing artist and music and, you know, we'll paint signs for like, she just painted the sign of the little liberation library, which is a public library on, on our land, on this land that we're occupying the possibility lines. Um, and um, so, yeah, I think naming it is part of it, too, is it's not just being, again, individualism where you're like, oh, how am I going to figure out what ar archetype I am, opposed to togetherness is, wow, Tucker, I really see you, and th this is real time, like peacemaker, like I see your commitment in peace breather, like how do we have people see each other and de-escalate the polarity and to make sure we're breathing in this love and this this energy from the universe and so for me naming what i what i'm guessing i see in you is also helpful like collective family gift naming so i find that super helpful is like just having a little map then you're like wow i really feel like you should go deeper into this it seems like an innate skill or an innate love that you have and how do we take that love to to make yourself alive make others alive and to heal you know that's the next question so yeah, I, I didn't mention that before, so it was a great question. I think naming these in each other is also beautiful healing work. Yeah. Yeah, I just had this image when you're speaking of that, of walking, you know, maybe on a walk in the woods with your daughter and you're pointing out the birds and the different types of trees and the different names of the flowers and then also the different names of the archetypes that are arising and the different you know it's like there's the whole subtle realm of thoughts and images and imagination and dreams and then there's mm -hmm. the concrete realm and then there's the, the mystical realm and so if we can actually just bring awareness to that and um and tell stories and 
craft experiences around that. That sounds like a really, really beautiful way to connect um, with each other as maybe even with our, the different parts of us internally as well, you know, like yeah. having conversations yeah. with the different parts and, you know, okay, you've been this protector this for so long and you've done such a beautiful job. And what is, what's a, what's a, an archetype that you might want to step into if you don't have to play that role and you can actually be unburdened from um, the, you know, the, the protecting that you've had to do and, could move into one of these other archetypes using that as an internal way of healing and holding as well. So I love that you're saying it's just an organic process. It's just a conversation. It doesn't have to be this like, it, yeah, it's just actually so simple to just talk about all these pieces and that, that it also leaving it open to flow that you might experiment with one archetype and it's really strong in you. And then two years later, you're introduced to a new one and you're like, Oh my gosh, I never knew this lived in me and that it's like a fluid flowing, you know, just like the water cycle, you know, it's really, when we make these maps rigid, that's when we lose their power. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful place to end. Ethan, thank you so, so much. This was really invigorating and I can't wait to publish this and get it out into the world. Thank you for everyone's patience. It's been, um, it's been a few months of hiatus since I've been, traveling around to different communities and Ethan for a while was um, having some bouts of Lyme disease and it's just so great to be back in conversation and I hope that there will be more in the very near future so thank you so much Ethan yeah thanks Tucker if you'd like to contact Ethan he can be reached at 207-338-5719 that's 207 207- Three three eight five seven one nine. The Possibility Alliance mailing address is also available in the show notes. Until next time, I'm your host, Tucker Walsh. Have a beautiful day.